I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, we've been uh, started studying this book in our senior high large group gatherings on Wednesday nights. Uh, we'll look this morning, or this afternoon, this, rather the first uh, nine verses of this first chapter, considering just the introduction uh, that Paul lays, some foundational groundwork uh, for this letter that he writes to the church in Corinth. So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time before we read his word together. Father, we thank you again for uh, this opportunity that you and your good providence have given to us uh, to open up your word and to study it together. We thank you for uh, the truth, for the divine truth that is contained here and that you have preserved throughout the ages. Uh, we thank you for those chosen men um, who have been inspired by the Holy Spirit. We thank you that it is a word that comes from you alone and that you intend for our growth in grace. And we ask for your help, O Holy Spirit, this night as we study this word of truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in that day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I think it goes without saying that there is tremendous pressure for those who belong to the Lord Jesus to live contrary to that calling. We live in a world that is absolutely enraptured with itself, a culture that is filled with narcissism. No one in our culture is going to stop you and tell you that you should stop living for yourself. No one is going to tell you that you should not live for your own pleasure and your own happiness. And so this is where everything in the world around us, and oftentimes the desires of our own hearts, at times, very frequently, line up with one another telling you basically the same thing. Gratify your own desires. Live for the moment. Elevate personal pleasure and your preferences above everything else. And so if we summarize the thinking of the average American, we could reduce it to individualism, self-indulgence, and immediate gratification. It's all about you, and it's all about now. When those of you who are students go to school or when the rest of us just go about our life, our week in the community in which we live, no one is telling you that you should live a life of godly living. No one is telling you that you should be concerned about holiness of life. No one is telling you that you should grow in your understanding of your identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, in your union with Him. That's language that we only hear in the church or in our homes as we study God's Word together. When we think about 
the way in which the world around us thinks of the church, I think it's interesting to sort of sketch church history, to look at the way in which the world around the church has thought of the church at different ways in different times of history. For example, if you go back into the Roman Empire, uh, the inception of the early church, Christianity was rejected, rejected because it was seen as something new, something new that comes on the scene in the first century. Now, of course, it's not anything new. It goes back to the beginning of time. But it was seen as new, and anything new under the mind of the Roman citizen was not worth our time. Any religion that might be new was simply seen as foolish, as subversive, and dangerous. If it's new, it can't be trusted. If it's new, it will undermine the stability of the empire. Only things that have stood the test of time can be true. Now jump ahead into our own time, and we find the exact opposite, don't we? If it's old, and if it's outdated, then it's irrelevant. Only that which is new is valuable and worth our time. And so what we're told so frequently is that we must move beyond the ancient. We must move beyond archaic things of the past. And of course, the Bible and Christian, Christian tradition are things that belong to the past, and so we must move beyond those things if we hope to improve humanity. Because that's what life is all about, isn't it? taking humanity as a collective whole, putting us at the center of all things, and somehow moving ourselves forward independently of any reference to the transcendence, any reference to God or objective truth. And so the pressures against godly living and the pressures against faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ are extremely difficult for the church. And many of our young people have the privilege of growing up in the church in which they're taught week by week not only the content of the truth of God's Word, but they're taught to grow in their love and affection and desire for God's Word to bear fruit in their life. They are taught that it is God's Word alone that is sufficient for all of life and practice. And we really ought not to make any apologies for indoctrinating our children. I know that word has a lot of negative connotations to it, but our children are not blank slates. And part of passing on that good deposit that we've been hearing about throughout the pastoral epistles is helping our children grow in their love for God's truth. Because as they grow into adulthood, there are unique challenges, unique challenges that will press them to either take the truth that they have heard all of those years of their lives growing up in the church and drive that truth deeper into their hearts so that it becomes an appropriate biblical conviction or those things that they have heard all the years of their life will be discarded for something else of their own making. Now, the subtle temptation of the garden, uh, the subtle temptation that is alive and well within our own hearts is that you can be your own arbiter of truth, that you can be autonomous, that you can determine for yourself what is acceptable and what is not, that you can trust your own independent mind, But you see, the Christian faith, as Cornelius Van Til put it, is the only thing that does not make nonsense of the human condition. To phrase that more positively, it's only the Christian faith that can make sense of anything. And so without a submission to the Lordship of Christ, everything in life will be absolutely meaningless and nonsense. And this really leads us to the first point, I think, that Paul is making here in his letter to the church of Corinth. 
We are people created and redeemed to live under authority. Where do we see that in the text? We'll look again at verse 1. Notice how Paul starts this letter. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And it's here that Paul establishes from the very beginning of his letter what we call his apostolic authority. And we've seen the same type of language at the beginning of the pastoral epistles that we've been going through Sunday mornings. And in fact, most of Paul's epistles begin this way, in which he states very explicitly that he is one who has been commissioned and set apart by Christ Jesus himself according to the will of God. Why is this important? Why is it important that Paul, at the beginning of this letter, tells the church that he is an apostle to establish that apostolic authority? Well, a couple of reasons at least. First, I think, is to point out that this is not some self-appointed role that Paul has assumed. It is not an office or a position that Paul aspired to. It's not as though there was a job opening for an apostle. God took all the applications that he could get, and Paul went through some sort of a vetting process in which he had the best intellectual abilities and gifts and so forth, and he was sort of just chosen of the best of what's available. But instead, it is an authority that starts with the nature of God. It is the Lord God on high himself who condescends, who comes down, and who has appointed Paul to this office of apostle. Now, you read about Paul's radical conversion in that familiar passage from Acts chapter 9. We read there that Paul goes from having this murderous hatred and rage toward the Christians to being used mightily by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's there in Acts chapter 9 that Jesus says, I will show him, I will show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. You recall 2 Corinthians 11 that we looked at this morning in in the morning sermon in which Paul outlines a number of ways in which he suffered for the sake of the gospel. And so Paul goes, you see, in his culture from being this influential leader, one who is looked to to give approval for the death of Christians, one who is looked to as being a new leader upon the scene, to going to being one instead who embraces in the eyes of the world a life of foolishness and is, as he undergoes suffering for the sake of Christ. Now, there's no other way to explain this radical conversion in Paul's life other than direct and divine intervention in his life, that it is the Lord Jesus who has set him apart as an apostle. Now, another reason why I think it's helpful and important to recognize Paul as an apostle is because there is inherent authority that comes with that position. If you flip over just a few pages to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, you'll see there in verse 37, where Paul says, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. The things I am writing to you our command of the Lord. And so when the church reads these words in this letter that they are receiving from Paul, they are to understand that these are commands that have come from God himself. So when Paul writes his letters to the church, we see, of course, great variety and diversity within those letters as he addresses particular needs and concerns that the churches are going through. It's never just this generic form letter that he follows 
but he writes to address specific needs that those churches need to hear at that particular time of history. And it's so important that those churches receive the words of Paul as authoritative from the Lord himself. And so if a church, for example, is in need of comfort, it's important that they hear words of comfort that accompany with that apostolic authority. If a church is abandoning the gospel, his words of apostolic authority bring appropriate rebuke and correction. Now here in Corinth, the people need to hear the apostolic authority of Paul because they are failing to live in unity with one another. Instead, they're being filled with division as they follow various factions within the church. And they're also struggling to figure out what does it look like to live as a Christian in a pagan world. And there's great struggle in ethical practice in everyday life. And so they need the apostolic authority to come alongside and offer them correction. So why does it help us to understand this apostolic authority of Paul? We might say, well, you know, that's all fine and good for those early recipients of this letter there in ancient Corinth. But what about today? What about for the church in our own time and in the place in which we live? Well, if it's true, you see, with human nature, and I think that it is, that we resist divine authority, then we need tenderly, lovingly, pastorally, as Paul does, to be reminded of the necessity of authority for all of life. In an article that I was reading online uh, a couple weeks ago by Scott Oliphant, this is my plug for y'all to make sure to be here. And two weeks from tonight, Dr. Oliphant will be with us. Listen to what he says. He says, we are dependent upon him for all things. That does not mean we are dependent on him for most things. It does not mean that we are dependent upon him for primary things or for things that are too hard for us or for things that we can't get ourselves. Anything that is not so dependent is, by definition, It is presumed to be original, in and of itself independent, and such things are reserved only for the original himself, that is God, not for man. And so you see, we are created to be image bearers. And what is an image supposed to do? Well, very simply, that image is meant, is designed to reflect the original. And if the original is removed, well, there is no image. There cannot be an image of you in a mirror unless you're standing in front of it. There must be the original in order for that image even to exist. And the reason that the world around us is in such a mess is because we, as a fallen human race, have tried to cut ourselves off from the original, from God himself. It is as though we are this image reaching through the mirror, seeking to push the original aside, wanting nothing to do with him. But the reality is, we are at all times dependent. And so if we are at all times dependent, and if we are dependent, as Oliphant says, for all things, then authority is crucial. And I think we could say that there's really only two ways for us to live, two ways for us to live at every single point in our lives. Either under divine authority or under the presumption of our own authority. And the reason that there is so much division in the church of Corinth is, again, because of these various groups simply elevating their own desires and their own preferences above all else, 
And in their own pride and arrogance, they are choking out love. And as love gets choked out, then it simply leads to further and further division. And so this is the importance, you see, of having a unified external body of truth. Something that's outside of me that we can all look to and say, this is the thing that we can be united in, in mind, and in practice, and in thought, of heart, you see. Something that we can all look to and say, this is the divine authority that brings unity, that binds the church of Christ together to our bridegroom. And here's the thing about authority. We resist it with every fiber of our being, and yet we need it at every point of our existence. And so as Paul opens this letter to the church of Corinth, this is not just a mindless greeting that he goes through. This is not sort of a way for him to get out of the way the formalities so that he can address real issues. And so if authority is something that Paul stops and takes the time to establish under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then we would be wise in our own lives to consider where we tend to resist God-appointed authorities. Perhaps as a child, we resist and fight against parental authority that has been placed over us. Perhaps we listen to church authority as long as it's something that fits my own particular preference, as long as it's something that I already agree with. Perhaps we in our own daily lives throughout the week neglect the truth of God's Word. Perhaps we fail to even read His Word throughout the week, seeking His face in prayer. We just don't see perhaps the importance or the relevance of His authority for daily living. We convince ourselves that Sunday morning and evening and maybe Wednesday night is sufficient to get me through. And so as you think about where you tend to resist such authority in your own life, challenge yourself to be attentive, to be submissive. Challenge yourself to be more regular in your own study of God's Word, because His authority over us is truly life itself. Well, what else is Paul establishing here from the beginning of his letter? Well, not only the importance of authority in his apostolic ministry, that then Paul goes on to identify the recipients of this letter the identity of God's people, the identity of those he's writing to. And we see that in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, call to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Now notice that there are four ways, four ways in which he describes the Corinthian community. First, they are the church of God. They are the called out ones the ones appointed by the Lord's good pleasure. By His divine election, they are set apart to have a relationship with Him. They are belonging, you see, to the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And second, they are sanctified in Christ. Sanctified meaning very simply that they are set apart from the world for a particular purpose, to live for the one who has saved them. And so it's this perfect passive, you see. They have been sanctified. They have been set apart, again, alluding to divine election, by the will of God himself. And third, as they have been sanctified, they have been set apart, you see, for a particular purpose. And that purpose is called to be saints, called to be holy, 
because of the Lord's faithful work in their lives, they are called to live distinctively, separately, differently than the world around them. And fourth, in verse 2, we see that these believers are called to be holy, not simply in some sort of an individual manner, but they are called along with all others who call on the name of the Lord Jesus to pursue holiness. They are members of one body, and therefore it is a calling that is to result in unity, in greater love and affection toward one another. Now later on in chapter 10, Paul points to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as an example of the unity that is to be present among them. He says in verse 17 there in chapter 10, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. And then, of course, later in chapter 12, there's that familiar passage in which Paul uses the analogy of a body to talk about the way in which we are to be united collectively together under the headship of Christ Jesus. So why is this identity language so important? Why not only lay this foundation for apostolic authority, but why go on then and lay another foundation, pressing the people to understand who they are in the Lord Jesus? See, Paul is about to launch into addressing very significant problems in the church. Things, again, that are related to division and factions that are being formed. He then rebukes them sternly for sexual immorality that they are allowing to be practiced within the church. And even though these are controversies that seem to be very pervasive, controversies that threaten the church in significant ways, I find it remarkable that Paul would have such delight that those in the church are children of the Lord Jesus. Now, something that Paul is very fond of doing in his letters is drawing contrasts. That can be a powerful teaching tool. This, you see, is who you once were, but this is who you now are. You once were pagans, you see, living a life of self-indulgence, living in rebellion against the Lord. But that's no longer who you are in your identity. You belong now to the Lord Jesus. And it's not just a contrast in identity, but the implication then is, is that there's a contrast in the way that we live our lives. Because you are no longer a pagan living in that idolatrous, self-indulgent lifestyle, that is not to be the way that you are to live any longer. But live as one who is set apart. Live a holy life as one who is holy, as one who is set apart, you see. And we see that in these opening verses. You are sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is who you already are, called to be saints, called to live a holy life. Now, why is it important for the church to be reminded that they are saints? Why is it important for us to be reminded that we are saints? Because it is this primary identity that trumps all others. And so you might be a student, you might be a boss, you might be a mother or a father or a spouse, and each in, in each of those little realms you conduct yourselves accordingly. But our primary identity, our identity that transcends them all, that is above everything else, is simply this, called to be saints because we are in the Lord Jesus. And so even though there are significant problems, again, that Paul will address, he makes no, no, no qualms with addressing those problems head on. 
But Paul does not allow those problems to define their identity. Paul does not allow those particular struggles to be the defining characteristics of the people in Corinth. They are in the Lord Jesus. They are recipients of his grace, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, Paul has much to be thankful for. Now just think of an application of this for for us, for our own lives. We may struggle with various things throughout this earthly life, and it is certainly appropriate for us to struggle with that indwelling sin. But those struggles that we go through in life, and even those failures in life, do not define us. Those struggles are not who we are, but our greater identity is in union with the Lord Jesus. And as we grow to understand who we are in Him, that radically changes the way that we live. Now just flip over to chapter 6, and towards the end of that chapter, just as an example of one way that Paul does this in this letter to the Corinthians. In chapter 6, verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And so here again, you see, is this identity language. We are not our own. We were bought with the price, the very price of Jesus' own shed blood. He has purchased us with his very life. And because of that, he has the right, he has the authority, he has the prerogative to define the way that we live. If we are set apart to him and we belong to him, then that means that it is important, it is vitally important what we do with our bodies, as he says here in chapter 6. The entirety of ourselves belongs to him, and we are called to a life of purity. Purity in speech, purity in conduct, purity in thought, purity in the area of sexual temptation. Called to be holy simply means that we are not to tolerate sin in our lives, but should grow in our hatred toward it. And so we are meant to be under authority. We are called to live a life of holiness because we are holy, because we are set apart. And there's a lot more that we could say here in this introduction, but let me just touch on one more thing briefly, and that is the importance of giving thanks to our covenant God. Now, as much as this letter is a letter to the church to help them understand how they should live in a fallen and pagan world. It's more than that. It's primarily a letter about God. And it's a letter about his redemption in sending his son to die for our sins. And so the call then for each one of us is to put our faith in the risen Christ and to grow in repentance. All of life is to be lived for the glory of God. And so our culture says life is about you and life is about now, but God's word says life is about the Lord and it's about eternity. And again, as much as the church is filled with problems, Paul lays another foundation here, the foundation of apostolic authority, foundation of our calling to holiness, and thirdly, a foundation of thanksgiving to the Lord. And this is not condescending, flattering language so that the church will listen to him. 
This isn't like, you know, when someone might come up to you and say, you know, you're a really nice guy. I really like you. But let me tell you some things that I don't like, some things that need correction. That's not what's going on here. You see, it's genuine thanksgiving. But notice that it's not thanksgiving for them exactly as though Paul is condoning their lifestyle. Instead, it's thanksgiving to God for his faithful work in their lives. Thankfulness that the Lord has shown grace to them in sending the Lord Jesus. Thankfulness that it is God who will sustain them and preserve them to the end. Thankfulness that God will faithfully carry them on to that day when the Lord Jesus will return. And so any evidence that we might have in our life of change, any evidence that we might have of progressive holiness, any evidence that we might have of increased affection for the Lord, all of those things you see are things to delight in, but things to give thanks to the Lord for. So when we see faithful living, give thanks to God. When we see our children obey instead of disobey, give thanks to the Lord. When we see a sister in Christ go through tremendous trials and yet praise the Lord for his faithfulness to her, give thanks to the Lord. Because this is all evidence of his faithfulness to his covenant people and his work among us, even as a local church here. He is faithful. He is good. He is our loving Heavenly Father. And we are to be a people who live in hopeful anticipation of his return. And so delight, people of God. Delight in the authority of the risen one who is your faithful king, who purchased you and who rules over you. Live confidently, even in the coming week, live confidently in the redeemed, as the redeemed in the Lord Jesus, as those who are covered in his righteousness, and be a people filled with thanksgiving. Because even in the midst of the most severe trials in our life, the truth is we can always be thankful because he will keep you strong to the end. He will keep you blameless in the Lord Jesus until the day that he returns. He who called you is faithful, and he will do it. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the great comfort of your word of truth, that you are the sovereign one who has chosen us to be your people, not because of anything within, but because of your love that you have set upon us. We thank you for the great comforts of, uh, of your covenant. And we do thank you that we have much, much to be thankful for. And as we live throughout this week, may we live in hopeful anticipation of the return of our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.